0: read a scripture last night like to read you know Jesus has just raised the the widow of Nain's uh, son and it says in this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things and John calling two of his disciples to him sent them to Jesus saying Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, Jesus cured many people. It seems like he wanted to make sure they understood what was happening. They'd already had the report that he had raised the dead. But at that very hour, he cured many people of their infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many who were blind, he gave sight. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your ways before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, and he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Amen. And when, when that last scripture, when I read it, I thought, that is an astounding statement. John the Baptist, it's, it's impossible to determine exactly how long he ministered. But the outermost limit of his ministry is two years. Most probably it was one year and possibly even less. What made him so great? He's comparing him to Elijah, Elisha, uh, Moses. And he's saying that this is him. He's, he's more, he says, than a prophet. And he describes him as he was he was not a reed blown about. And in a certain sense he he wasn't seeking his own. He, he, he wasn't looking for the finery for himself or a nice place to live or something like that. It seems like that what made him so great was this incredible burning zeal, single-minded zeal. I mean, he lived in the desert for for a good bit of time, this single-minded zeal to see the kingdom of God come. And he was the most immediate to it. The prophets in the Old Testament, all these others, most of their prophesying and everything had to do with putting together what ultimately was a foreshadowing or a representation of what was to come. But John the Baptist was pointing to what was going to come. There was something immediate in his ministry. He was opening the door to that which other things just sort of pointed toward. I mean, why was he the greatest of all? There was there was something about the nature of his ministry and and how close it was to the coming of the kingdom of God and there was something about his character amen he wasn't blown to and fro he wasn't seeking his own there was something burning in him and it just we're in the kingdom and the greatness of John is within reach of all of us. If the conviction is unswervable, if we allow ourselves to be molded by the fivefold ministry into a perfect man, then we're no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine it forms a character within us that Jesus says makes us even greater than John the Baptist. Be- he's saying this is the ultimate to shoot for. And if we're not distracted, as has been said, but if we have that faith to move forward, amen, not, not distracted by finery or anything, I mean, I'm, that's what he's saying here. We have the ingredients there of being everything God wants us to be. And when I, when I read that, I'm just gonna go through exactly how it hit me and the sequence. When I read that, you know, Jesus said, none was greater than John after the people came seemingly with questions of doubt. You know, are you the one to come or, and you know, to tell you the truth, that's the way I've always understood it. John's ministry is about coming to come into a close. It's not turning out the way he thought it was. And and there's truth to all that, probably. And there was there was, you know, maybe some struggles of doubt or whatever. And that's just the way I've always pictured it. I'm sure I've even spoken about it in that light. But I'm just telling you, when I read that scripture, none is greater than John different picture popped into my head about John and the question. And it wasn't a hand-wringing doubt. It was this burning zeal. The kingdom's got to come. Is this it? Cousin, (laughs) are you going to come through? Amen. It was an expression of conviction. The kingdom has to come. It wasn't, oh my poor me. Oh, I mean, I'm just saying that's the picture that came into my mind. All of a sudden, the reed wasn't being blown by his circumstance. He certainly wasn't seeking kings' houses and finer. He was in prison. But there was some type of conviction inside of him. He was, ooh, the kingdom has to come. This is what my life is all about. It's got to come. Amen. Come on, is this it? Amen. And then, I mean, in in just having that picture in my mind, I then later on, like 15, 20 minutes later, happened to be reading in the only place that actually describes John in prison, and that's Mark 6. And you know the story, King Herod's got him thrown in prison, Herodias has done this and that, and he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. But it says, uh, for Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he'd married her. For John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. (laughs) I tell you, he, he, he wasn't afraid to speak. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him now here is the only description of john in prison and when he herod heard him john he did many things and heard him gladly what was john doing in prison He was slicing and dicing Herod just like he had before. (laughs) Amen. He was still preaching the word of God. He was making lemonade out of lemons. He wasn't bothered by being in prison. He still was there. Amen. Ministering and preaching. And of course, days later, he, he got his head cut off. His conviction was solid He didn't care about his circumstances he didn't care about the what-ifs and i believe this is what jesus was saying this man is the greatest of all of them amen now maybe there's other ways to look at it but that is the only place that it describes john in prison and he was ministering the word of god no matter what the circumstance and i want to echo what's been said there is a greatness that isn't A heroic greatness. We're gonna do some great exploit. It's a greatness of unswerving conviction. It's a greatness of seeking first the kingdom of God. Letting everything else it'll be supplied and in that greatness the men of God rise up. And I'll tell you if there has ever been a time where rise up oh men of God be done with lesser things. God put that in us. Let us make ourselves vulnerable to the, to the ministry of the word of God that'll put in us the maturity to not be blown to and fro. Put in us the conviction to make everything else secondary. The kingdom of heaven is desperate for men of God. I want that kind of greatness, even if it's something that we wouldn't even read about, wouldn't even know about except for one line in the Bible. But he, he wouldn't bend, he wouldn't break. It was in him. I'm thankful for the, for the context where it can happen. I don't care who we are, we can be changed into that type of individual right here in this context. Amen. And that's what God wants to do. Rise up, O men of God. Be done with lesser things. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. As
1: the brothers have been speaking this morning, I think about how they keep referring to something greater, a greater purpose, contrasting that to the distractions or the earworms of the flesh. I'm going to remember that. And what Brother Chris started off with, if only, you know, that works in reverse also. You can say, I would be this if only, and I would be that if only, and my life would be different if only. But we see in the Bible where that same phrase is used for faith, where the woman with the issue of blood was saying to herself, if only. I take this step. If only I step forward and make a change, my whole life can be different. So let's turn that if only into a step of faith instead of an excuse for staying stuck. But when they were speaking, they keep alluding to the fact that that there is a higher purpose and a higher vision, a greater cause in conflict with our individuality, the smallness of our own perspective and I thought of that passage that uh, we've spoken of countless times, but where he says without a vision, the people perish, and, and how one translation correctly renders it, without a vision, the people cast off restraints. Brother Kevin was saying that we needed to be straightened to do God's will. And it is a vision, it is surrendering to the absolute priority of an urgent vision that constrains you. It's what makes you feel like you've got to get something done quickly. It's what makes you feel like you've got to delay the irrelevant because something urgent is at hand. By nature, a vision dictates constraints to your life. If you have committed to make money for yourself, that is a vision that's going to constrain your time. And you're going to say, I'm not fulfilling my vision. And it is the same with the great vision that God has given the church. If we want to find the constraints that are not self-made religion, that are not harsh treatment of the body, that are not the appearance of piety without true submission to the cross, we're going to have to see this vision that John saw that constrained his life. You've heard the adage, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. If you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a vision, then you don't have constraints. As soon as you accept that something's got to be done, and it's got to be done in a certain amount of time, then you feel the constraints coming instantly. And I think that in the broadest sense, what is the vision that God has and would give his church. I don't just mean this church, but I mean his church. I don't mean this local congregation only, but it should be ours and every other church's vision and mission, ultimately. What is that vision? I think that in the broadest sense, mankind has been involved in a cosmic conflict between the power of love and life and the power of fear and hatred and death. We have been incorporated into this drama because we were created by one side in this long-standing war. And so there is something that we are supposed to fulfill in terms of our glory-rendered God And there is something that we're supposed to fulfill in terms of our receipt of his grace in our own personal lives. But there is something more epic that is supposed to be fulfilled in terms of what we prove about God to God's enemies. And we can see this throughout the story of the Bible. This is the big picture drama This is the big vision, if you will. Job, the oldest story, the oldest uh, book in the Bible, tells a story about God having this conflict with the devil. And the devil's basic argument is that everybody is controlled by superficial pleasures or fears, pains or pleasures. And the Lord says, no, that's not true. Because that's the devil's package, that's the devil's toolbox that he's alluding to there, skin for skin, control him by pain or pleasure. But the Lord says, No, I still have a horse in the race. I still have a chance that starting with one faithful man, righteousness can spread across the face of this earth. He says, where have you come from, he asks the devil, roaming across the whole face of the earth. And the Lord says, well, there's one person, I don't have anyone else like him in all the world, but there's one person who should make you nervous. And his name is Job. And the devil then makes Job the fulcrum of this conflict between God and himself. And we know that Job sometimes doesn't understand, sometimes acts foolishly, puts his foot in his mouth, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, he's faithful. And even in his lack of understanding, he stays faithful to the big vision and the big purpose, which is proving that love is stronger than death and faith is not circumstantial. And then this is carrying all the way through when Jesus stands before Pilate Pilate is the counterpart to Jesus, and he's flexing his muscles and he's acting like, you know, don't you know I have the authority? And Jesus has this calm about him. He doesn't believe that it is possible that God would allow him to be in a circumstance that he does not have the grace to confront. God is still sovereign. And even though people may disobey him, even though people may violate his will and bear the consequences themselves, he has promised that he will equip you with the grace you need no matter what you face. Furthermore, he has promised that he will not let you be buried under something you can't bear. But with every temptation, he will provide a way of escape. And so Jesus strengthens himself When Pilate flexes his muscles, Jesus says, you would have no authority if it had not been given to you by my Father. What he's saying is, what you want me to be afraid of, God has allowed. And therefore, God has equipped me for. I am not going to be daunted because you're standing there acting like a big shot. This is part of God's purpose. Does that mean that Pilate was somehow in God's will in his own personal choices? No, not at all. Does it mean that God predestined to send Pilate to hell? No, not at all. But it does mean that Jesus is God's son and God won't let his son go through something he doesn't have the grace to bear or come out of victoriously. And Jesus reveals his part in this cosmic drama when Pilate asks him, are you a king then? And he says, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And of course, Pilate begins to ask, what is truth? He could have just shut his mouth and he would have seen the truth, heard the truth, experienced the truth, because he was standing there before him. But Jesus says this is the cause of his life, to bear witness to the truth. And this is the cause of Paul's life. This is the cause of Job's life. Paul says that he has fought the fight of faith. And that he wants to finish the race and receive a crown. He wants to be faithful unto death. As Revelation says, Amen. And receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Paul says he hadn't finished it yet, but then later he says, I have finished it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Hallelujah. He did what he was, what he was called to do. He played his part in a drama between the prince of darkness and the prince of peace. And this is the big picture. And this is important because in Ephesians 3, the Apostle Paul tells us that this is God's purpose behind the church. This is why the church is here. We wouldn't be here if salvation were truly just individualistic. We wouldn't be here if all Jesus wanted to do was secure our afterlife situation. But instead, we have a mission. We have a purpose. And it's not merely an individualistic purpose. It's a corporate mission. It's a corporate purpose. And somehow, the church is going to rise up and be God's final resounding answer to all the principalities and powers that have fought him for all these years. It's important that Paul tells us that God is going to display his manifold wisdom and his purpose, his eternal purpose through the church. The manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. It's important that he does not say that this is going to be made known to thousands or millions of individuals, which of course is also true, but that's not his point. His point is that this is an authority conflict, that this is rulers fighting. These are heavenly authorities at odds. And somehow the church is going to reveal something that ends the conflict. And this is the big picture of what God has called us to. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ our Lord. Well, the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ our Lord is that the rulers of this world crucified him, but they didn't know he was gonna make a public spectacle of them through the cross. And what he's saying is what began at the cross is gonna be finished through the church. He says this is in accord. And this is the same Paul who's already celebrated what Jesus did when he made a public spectacle of principalities and powers. But he's saying, that battle's not over. There's more at stake. And somehow, it's an authority issue, it's a power issue. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory, amen. And we've talked before, but in the broadest sense, the term glory, relates to the divine joining with the mortal, joining with the temporal, the human, the fleshly. That's what glorification entails. It's when God comes down and makes his abode with us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be empowered, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Are you going to comprehend this by yourself? Are you going to comprehend this, you and Jesus, in your Bible study in the morning? No, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. So we can infer through all of this that somehow the love of fatherhood through the church is going to shut the mouths of the lions. Is going to confound the principalities and powers when they see that the greatest power in the world is not brute force, is not fear, is not hatred. It's the love of the father from whom the whole family derives its name. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, to all generations, you know, it's forever and ever, but it literally means world. Without end. Is this world gonna end? This world and all the works of it, Peter says, is gonna melt with a fervent heat. So, what does he mean when he says, God is gonna reveal a new glory? God is gonna reveal something that surpasses everything we ask, think, or imagine. God is gonna display glory through the church. And that this is going to be world without end? What is he talking about? We're told over and over that his kingdom is everlasting. Daniel says, and his kingdom shall have no end. So what he's talking about here is the kingdom of heaven taking up residency in the world through the church. And there's going to be a continuous kingdom. There's going to be a continuous world in this new culture of the body of Christ. Do you see it? A world without end? That's powerful. To him be glory in the church. In Christ Jesus to all generations. Forever and ever. World without end. Amen. And then the next words he says. Therefore. For this. For this purpose. And what does he begin to teach in chapter 4? Paul doesn't feel that the church has realized its full purpose. And it's not just about individualistic salvation and transformation and blessing, etc., etc. That's a beautiful part of it. (laughs) But that's not the main thing here. There's something bigger than all of that that God is trying to accomplish And it's this glory. It's this love of the Father. It's something that we cannot ask, think, or imagine, but that is supposed to be working in us. You know, this idea, I've told you that glory in the broadest sense refers to God's, the divine presence, the divine divine power coming together with the flesh. When Jesus lost all the limitations of his mortal existence, and assumed all the powers and rights of his divine existence, we call it, he was what? Glorified. And when Moses changes so that his natural face begins to radiate with spirituality, we call it the glory of his face, the glory of his countenance. And when Jesus prays in John 17, he asks that the Father would love us with the exact same love that he loved Jesus and that he would give us the same glory. Meaning that God wants to incarnate himself in a people even as he incarnated himself in the man Christ Jesus. And the man Christ Jesus, he had all of God's spirit in bodily form, without measure, no limitation on it. And we all only have a measure. But together, we're supposed to have the fullness of what would represent the sonship of God through the church. Let's look at this. Let's look at how God has intended that His glory, His presence take up residency in the earth. First, when when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8, recorded in 1 Kings 8, he's just finished the temple, and what does he say? He says, will God indeed dwell on earth? And that is our question today. Will God indeed dwell on earth? Will he? Solomon has just built a stone house. And he is relating this question to the house he has built. He says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. And Paul and Stephen both say that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands. The question is, does he dwell in temples made with God's hands Isaiah says thus says the Lord heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool where is the house you could build for me and where is my place of rest so the problem with all of the structures that man built is that man built them but God's design has always been to rectify the rift in the garden of Eden where man once walked with God in the Spirit, and then there was a divorce, and man was sent out of the garden, out of this communion with the Most High. And he wants to rectify that. And he says "It's the problem with all of the prior structures is that they are built with human hands. But is there a structure, in a manner of speaking, that God would dwell in upon the earth? The first indication of this is in John where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt. What, is that word, what does that literally mean there? Pitched his tabernacle among us. Well, the first house of worship that was made for the children of Israel was called the, the tabernacle. So he's saying, John is saying, in the beginning was the Word, the creative force of God. And the Word was with God. And the Word, in fact, was God. But the Word became flesh. And he calls that pitching his tabernacle, erecting his building, opening up his tent among us. And what is the next words out of his mouth? And we, what? Beheld His glory, full of grace and truth. Do you see what glory is? Glory is when the divine pitches his dwelling, makes his dwelling in the tent of flesh. And we beheld his glory full of grace and truth, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And he came to his own and his own did not receive him and as many as received him to them he gave the power, the exousia, to become sons of God. To those who believed in his name who were born not of flesh nor the will of man nor of blood but were born of God. So he's saying that this sonship that Jesus had when God pitched his tent in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, this is not supposed to stay here In this single man only, but there's supposed to be, he's supposed to be the firstborn among many brethren. He's supposed to bring many sons to glory, to quote the scripture in two different places. So, this tabernacle is not going to remain an individual, this tabernacle is going to become a community, it's going to become a temple. In John 2, the next chapter, we know that Jesus is speaking and it says, Jesus answered them and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Notice he does not say, I will build it back. He says, I will raise it up. <laughs> build it back would mean one thing, raise it up refers to resurrection. Resurrection. John puts a parenthetical in the scripture and he says they did not understand that he was speaking to them about his body. So his body, his fleshly body, was the temple. It was the house. And what is unique about this house, among all the houses that have been made for God, is that it's not made with human hands. So God chose, according to Colossians 2.19, it pleased the Father that all his fullness would dwell in Jesus. That Jesus would be the outshining of God's fullness. Now, don't try to interpret that in a quantitative sense. Interpret that in a qualitative sense. So all the fullness of energy is coming from that light bulb Even if we turned off all the lights in this room, all the fullness of the energy would be coming from that light bulb. But does that mean that the light is contained and limited to that globe? No. That energy is going forth and it's filling the whole room. It's reflecting off of surfaces. It's shining in our eyes if we looked at it like I just did. It's everywhere. And so when we talk about the Father's fullness dwelling in Jesus... The ignorant will say, so does that mean the Father wasn't in heaven? No, the heavens cannot contain him, nor the earth sustain him. God cannot be packaged or limited into any space, but he can shine forth from wherever he chooses. And the place that he chose to shine forth from was the throne of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's in heaven, and he's on earth, and he's everywhere, and you cannot package him or box him into any place, but he is shining forth that's what hebrews 1 says that he was the outshining of his very being the exact representation of his person so he uses this term in colossians 1:19 he says that it pleased the father that his fullness that all his fullness should dwell in jesus can everybody say fullness, fullness. okay and then in colossians 2:9 the next chapter we have this uh, excellent scripture that, that uh, really emphasizes the deity of Jesus and, and that he was not one-third of the Godhead, but that he was God in human form, right? It says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Can everybody say empty? empty. So we've just said fullness, and now we've said empty, Paul is thinking about things in this way, so it helps us to highlight these two words. Fullness, empty. Philosophy, empty. Relationship with God, fullness. Okay? Here's where he goes. Through empty deception according to the tradition of men, empty. According to the elementary principles of the world, empty. Rather than according to Christ. Brother Howard could exposit the grammar right there, but it's actually quite interesting. I'll save it for him. For in him, that is in Christ, all the, the fullness of deity dwells. Now this is Paul speaking after the resurrection, after the ascension, after the uh, glorification, after the kenosis period has ended and been replaced by the glorification period. And he does not speak in the past tense. He does not say in him once the deity dwelt. He says in him all the fullness of deity Dwells in bodily form. And this is where we have great mental pretzels created for those who cling to an ontological trinity because you cannot have all the fullness of the deity dwelling in Jesus and leave him as only one third of the Godhead. You've got some big problems there. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form and in him you have been made Complete. It's an interesting word there. Hmm. What what is that word, complete? Hmm. It is verbatim the same word as he's just used, in him all the fullness dwells in bodily form. It is exactly the same word. He's saying, and in him you have been made the fullness. So he's saying that what happened with Jesus, he intends that it should happen with the church. Now the the pronouns here make it clear, he's not talking to individuals. He's not talking to you, he's talking to you all. So if Paul was a Texan, he would have said, y'all have been made complete. (laughs) And in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh. That's what we took off. That was the me. Amen. That's the self that we were circumcising, getting out of the way, that we were talking about at the beginning, having been buried with him in the baptism, I'm sorry, circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the the working of God who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your heart, he made you alive, which is to say resurrected, that term made alive. He resurrected you with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions and, and uh, so on and so forth. He goes on and he says, the substance belongs to Christ. Everything else doesn't matter. And I believe the substance there is soma, which is what? Body. The body belongs to Christ. So in the broadest sense, he's saying, you got rid of one body, you, and you got a new body, Christ. And it's a big body. Does anybody understand that? (laughs) I don't want to lose anybody. Okay, let's look at some more scriptures. In Colossians 2, verse 19 through 22, we are told, So then, you all, y'all, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the question that he asked, will God indeed dwell on earth? What is the answer to that? Yes, a resounding yes, God will indeed dwell on earth. And the first tabernacle he pitched was the man from Nazareth. But the ultimate tabernacle he intends to pitch is the church, which we call the body of Christ. Of course, Peter says the same thing. You also, as living stones, are being built together as a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. 1 Corinthians 3 says the same thing. You all are a temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you all. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. And this raises a question. Is Paul just shooting his mouth when he says that? It's like if if I said, if any man destroys the sun, God will destroy him. Would that be a meaningful statement? If I said to one of my kids, if you destroy the moon, I'm going to spank you. Would that be a meaningful statement? Why would that not be a meaningful statement? Because they can't destroy the moon. But when Paul says, if any man destroys the temple of God, and he's just said this is the corporate people of God, what is he suggesting? That it is fragile. That you can destroy it. That we can come short of having this as it was intended, a temple from God. So he just says, you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you all, and if anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy him. People think that's talking about personal. It's not. It's talking about corporate. And so, how would we destroy it? Well, the whole story in Corinthians is against what? Divisions, factions, schisms. Elements that would bring cracks and fissures in the stones that are being fitly framed together. So it's possible for us to have the elements of the temple, but have it in a destroyed state. He goes on and he says uh, in Second uh, Corinthians, he says we. Are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are the temple. There's a sense in which we are individually temples, but the broadest sense and the most consistent sense is that we are the temple, we are components of one temple. In the passage from John that I was reading, in the beginning was the word. It says, of his fullness we have all received. And grace upon grace. I've already mentioned that. What is that fullness? That is the ability for the Spirit of God to come into the tabernacle of flesh. In Ephesians 1, he says, He put all things into subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what are we saying? We're saying that God wants to fill full the body of Christ. Not quantitatively with more people, though that's part of his plan in another sense, but he wants to fill it with himself. It says that his body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Then Ephesians 3, we're back to where we begin, that we would comprehend with the saints, right? that we would understand this eternal purpose, which is the wisdom of God that is on display to principalities and powers. And then we're back to Ephesians 4, where he says, he's just finished his prayer, and he says, therefore, for this reason, what is God trying to say? You see, here's the problem. There's no universe where you and I can fulfill Our mission on earth, our purpose alone. That is a complete misnomer. And there's not even a way that you can fulfill it alone while supported by the body. The only way you're going to fulfill or fill full your mission is by becoming part of the body of Christ. One great corporate witness that is supposed to be Filled with all the fullness of God. And when that happens, we will behold his glory. And the prayer of John 17 will be fulfilled. That we would be loved as he was loved. And that he would give us the same glory. So, in Ephesians 4, after telling us that there's going to be a glory in the church that is beyond, that surpasses anything we ask, think, or imagine. And after telling us that this is going to do to the principalities and powers. It's going to be the final act of God's wisdom in their face. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And what is the calling? The calling is to become this corporate tabernacle. The calling is to become this place where the glory of God rests. We know what happened when Moses built the tabernacle according to pattern. What happened? The glory of God filled it. And this is a type and shadow of what is going to happen in the church. We know what happened when Solomon built the temple exactly according to pattern. What happened? The glory of God filled it. And when Jesus came as God's made temple, as the God made temple, the glory of God filled him and rested upon him. And he lived a life in glory and was glorified in his return. But that is supposed to happen now, not individualistically, but corporately as the people of God. So that's his prayer, and he says, Therefore, I pray that you would walk worthy of the calling, which is this calling of this corporate glory, with all humility, gentleness, and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all he goes through all of this and he says, but to each one of us, and I've shared some of this with you before, but you've got to hear it again. He says, walk worthy of the calling, keep the right attitude. But then he introduces this word. He says, but, but there's this problem. There's something playing havoc with this calling. But to each one of us is given a measure of Christ's gift. We didn't get the Holy Spirit without measure. We got it with measure. We got the first picking. We got the first fruits. We were given it an apportionment of Christ's gift. And so he talks about that, and then he, says, he solves that problem. He says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts unto men. And then he enumerates what those gifts are in verse 11. But he also does it in 1 Corinthians 12. So what I'm saying is that we have a mission, and the mission is to become the tabernacle of God's glory. But there's a problem. You don't have as much of the spirit at work in your individual life as you want. You only have a measure. But there's a solution. So, the church emerges as the solution to the smallness of our spirit deposit. And the fivefold ministry, specifically, is the mechanism through which He will make up what was missing in what we got directly from the Lord ourselves. Be worthy of the calling, but there's a problem. You only got a portion, but there's an answer. We've got the fivefold ministry. And if I'm saying the truth, listen to what he says right in the middle of his description of the fivefold ministry. He says, he who descended, Jesus who descended, is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Why? So that. Why did he ascend? Why did he ascend? So that he might fill all things. The purpose of his departure was to release the spirit that would fill all things. He wanted us to become the fullness. (laughs) Hallelujah. So that he might fill all things. Why did Moses ascend the mountain? To receive the covenant of the law. And that's what he came back with. The covenant of the law. And that law was in the Ark of the Covenant all along. But why did Jesus ascend into heaven? He did not return with the law. But on the day of Pentecost, which was the celebration of the giving of the law, he came back with a new power. The power to fill all things. You see it? Be not drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be my witnesses, he said. Tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is the personal deposit, but it's still a portion. It is enough for you to be born into the kingdom. But it is not enough to complete this tabernacle. So Pentecost wonderfully celebrates the personal Pentecost of each individual baptism. Amen? Hallelujah! Woo! But that gets you born. The five-fold ministry is phase two to make up for the smallness of that individual deposit. And if we don't get to phase two then we are in a destroyed, dilapidated, fragmented temple. Brothers can't get along together. People can't learn to love each other. The father from whom all the families in heaven and on earth derive their name, he's not getting the glory. The witness isn't going forth. There's got to be this discipleship process to get us from that initial deposit into that full measure of the stature of Christ, a perfect man. He's not talking about individuals there. He says he's given apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, until we all grow up into the head, even Christ. And we attain, we attain to the full measure of one perfect man. I've had people coming from from various backgrounds you know, talk in individualistic terms like they're personally trying to reach the full measure of the stature of Christ in their personal life. That's absurd. That's impossible. But we all together can make full this tabernacle of flesh where nothing but the glory of God lives there. Let's worship the Lord and ask that it be so. Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. He says that the five-fold ministry is going to be at work until, we quote that wrong all the time, we say that we're supposed to preserve the unity of the Spirit until, Paul does not say that at all. That's just a complete figment that we've imposed on it. It's not untrue, it's just not Paul. Paul says preserve the unity of the Spirit, period. And then he says, the fivefold ministry is going to be at work until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God, one perfect man. So when does that happen? Well, that happens when our obedience is complete. He shall reign until he puts all things under his feet. In Hebrews, he says, he will subject all things to himself. But he says, but right now, at present, all things are not subjected to him. And if you look at the church, you cannot say that all of human pride and sin and confusion and strife and what, it's not all under his feet. But the proper ordering of the church in the fivefold ministry under discipleship is to bring all things under his feet. And he shall reign in this capacity until he puts all things under his feet. Then he's going to put an end to it all. There's going to come a day when nobody submits. (laughs) Nobody's going to submit. Because why? Then God will be all, where? In all. all. (laughs) So we've got to bring everything under his feet we got to come under complete submission. we got to let the, the fivefold ministry and all the gifts of the body help us to bring all of this under the dominion to Christ. And then it's going to be complete. There's going to be a corporate man who does nothing except what he hears the Father speaking, who does not act on his own initiative. And everything that is made of man's hands is going to be shaken, but that corporate temple is going to remain and then the the founding cornerstone will become the crowning capstone and he will return with shouts of grace to it grace to it, God bless it God bless it then comes the end this fivefold ministry has got to be at work until the Lord returns and the Lord is going to return when we've brought everything into subjection to the spirit when we brought everything into subjection To the mind of Christ. Revelation says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will live among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And this is what Jesus promised when he said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's the promise, and that's the mission. The promise is that we would let this special kind of authority of the fatherhood of God overcome and prove more glorious than all the counterfeit systems of the world, and that this great big corporate house would be filled with his glory such that no flesh could enter which parallels what he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God it's going to be this place where people can say that has to be God that's not possible that's not possible then the world will know that God sent Jesus because they are seeing the son in his corporate form They are seeing the same love and the same glory on us as Jesus had on himself. They're not going to know it in some abstract, mystical sense. They're going to know it because they're encountering it. They're experiencing it as they interact with a people who are as surrendered to God as Jesus was. And to that people, he says, you are complete. You are complete. We've got to focus, brothers and sisters, we've got to focus on bringing everything under dominion to the headship of Jesus. Everything under dominion. And that's a personal battle in a lot of our lives. That's what we were talking about, the personal battle with the thoughts, the personal battle with the excuses, the personal battle with the conviction, but it's also a corporate battle because he didn't give us enough in the spirit to, to do it all by ourselves. We have a limited portion, but he's given the ministry. He's given the order of the body. And if we will submit to that, we can transcend the smallness of our spirit deposit and partake of the fullness that fills the body of Christ. Nothing is more important. Nothing will be more impactful. Nothing will be a greater witness There is no cause. There is no doctrine. There is nothing that can hold a candle to this mission. This is what it's all about. This is what it boils down to. Thank you, Jesus. Don't you want to be part of it? Amen. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's something so much bigger. Amen. We've all got to do our parts in this temple. We've got to... We've got to give according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've got to minister in accordance with the faith that has been given us, in accordance with the grace that has been given to us, recognizing that both of those have limitations, right? And it's in giving to others that they're going to receive, and it's in receiving from them that we're going to receive. We're not, we're, not, we're not able to do this by ourselves. We're going to give them. We're part of what they get, and they're part of what we get. We've got to have each other. Amen? we got to get out of this place of immaturity. People talk about the five-fold ministry like it's some risky scheme that's scary and untested. But Paul said the five-fold ministry was going to stop the risky schemes where people were tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's what's supposed to end it. And when that's happening, it's evidence that the five-fold ministry is not at work. When people are growing up, and there is measurable maturity when we're growing up into the head, then we say, Oh, the fivefold ministry is at work. This is unprecedented unity. This is unprecedented maturity. This is unprecedented glory. God, we're doing it. We're getting somewhere. We're on track. But let's keep going all the way.
2: Everybody may already be thinking about this, but. It just strikes me today how connected this vision is to what God has been speaking to us for the past couple of weeks. And beyond that, about not just coming out of Egypt and then dying in the wilderness, but coming into our son placing, into our adoption, where we find our place in the Father's house. You know, just all the words that have been coming to us. I just keep thinking of it here today that. God, help us not to give up on the process because he's building a house where glory is going to come. Glory is already coming, but it's going to be manifested in greater and greater levels. And he's called us to be a part of us. Therefore, don't lose heart when the Lord disciplines us, when he speaks to us, when he gets out the hammer and chisel to fashion those spiritual stones to find their place in the spiritual house. This is what it's all for. You know, when we're... Uh, we were singing that about not by might, not by power. I think it's in the same passage there in, in Zechariah, I think is where it is, where it says that they rejoiced to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They were going back to rebuild the temple as the place of his name. And and just the whole the whole thing that happened there in the wilderness, you know. And Deuteronomy 12, where he says, you shall no longer do... What you're all doing here today, each of you as he sees fit in his own eyes. But when you come into the land, you shall go to the place that I have chosen to put my name. You know, and the promises that if the foreigners are going to come, everybody's going to come. They're all going to come to the Lord's mountain. Amen. And you just feel like that this is God's vision for his people. There's so many people in the broader church world today who are just doing their own thing in their own way. And it's not manifesting the glory that God is speaking to us about today. And let me just read you one, one passage that I read before the meeting. This is in Hebrews 3. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if, here's one of those positive if onlys, (laughs) whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Can we come all the way through rejoicing to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel? God, I want to be part of your house. Amen. There's apparently a requirement here that we've got to hold fast our confidence. That means our faith. A couple lines down, he says, hold fast our commitment. Amen. And we've got to continue rejoicing. I know that sounds like a burden, but that's apparently a condition for becoming the house of God that we hold fast the attitude that rejoices when we see that plumb line in his hand. We're going to be his house, firm to the end. Thank you, Jesus.